If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. Yeti's been a longtime supporter of mine and has some of the best products out there, including their just-released 15 and 60 Go Boxes. These are durable, stackable, dust and watertight storage that's great for organizing and transporting all your favorite gear to and from the field. I actually got to test some of these this past season and put them through the paces traveling from hunt to hunt. It kept my stuff accessible and protected. Practical in so many situations, from raft trips down the river to elk camp in the Rockies, it's nearly indestructible, go anywhere storage that's now available. All right. Well, welcome back to the Live Wild podcast, everyone. This week, we're doing our Live Wild Live. Thank you for everyone that called in. I'm really excited about today's podcast. Plus, we've got an awesome giveaway for one lucky caller. Today, one lucky caller is going to get an Avail 2200 pack from Stone Glacier. You know, we've been talking about scouting, and we just finished our three-part series on scouting. Got a lot of great response from that. A lot of people really enjoyed that. So thank you guys so much for for reaching out and, and telling me your thoughts on those podcasts and that little series. This pack is a perfect day pack, good summer runaround pack for those scouting trips. So I'm really excited to be able to give one of those away. In past live shows, I've also mentioned, I wish there was a way that I could do more giveaways for people and pretty much everybody that wanted one. We did a giveaway from wilderness athlete for some heroes that was a lot of fun to do so for those of you that are listening and didn't get to make the call in at the end of the show we're going to have one stone glacier skyline bino harness up for grabs as a thank you just for the support from you guys so one of those i'm going to give away and i'll give details on how to win that for those that want to play at the end of the podcast but also a big thanks to Stone Glacier for putting all this together, these prizes and things. And as always, for those of you looking for any packs, sleep systems, that kind of stuff, you can always use code LIVEWILD to get free shipping on any Stone Glacier product. So big thanks to Stone Glacier for setting up these prizes. Every time we ask about doing a, a cool prize like this for the podcast, they're big fans of the podcast and they just jump on it. So thank you guys. I know there's a lot of you waiting on the line here, hoping that... So a lot of you waiting to hope that I get to your questions. A lot of you hoping that you walk home with this pack. So we're going to jump in to the first call. If you've never called in before, the the way we like to do it, just give me your name, maybe where you're from, and then we'll go right into your hunting questions. Before we dive into that, I actually asked some questions on social media here. 
And I said that I'd read one of them. So the first one, the question that I picked comes from Dennis. He asks, if you were to pick one person to thank more than anyone to help motivate, guide, mentor, lead, and overall share your successful journey to where you are today, who would it be? You know, that's an easy question for me. That would definitely be my dad. You know, there was a lot of times growing up where he just really fostered that, my passion for hunting. He hunted, he got me into hunting, but I think I, I loved it in a way that was just beyond, probably beyond normal. But for most of the people calling in, they, they understand. I was just absolutely obsessed. And I think that one of the cool things that he did is he just really encouraged that. Like there was a lot of forms of hunting that he knew nothing about. I remember when I was a kid, I, I wanted to get into bow hunting and he's like, yeah, sure. And he, and he got a bow and I kind of figured it out on my own. And then I taught him how to bow hunt later on, but him being willing to do that meant a lot. But also I think that the biggest lessons he taught me and, you know, with Father's Day coming up, I think sometimes dads get put on the back burner. Moms have a very important role. Probably one of, I would say uh, they just have a very important role, right? But we can't forget about the importance of dads in our lives. And the thing that I think my dad taught me that meant the most in life was just hard work. You know, in, in some instances or growing up, I kept thinking, oh, he's really hard on me, this, that, and the other thing. But he taught me how to work hard. He taught me, you know, not to sit around. He taught me how to, when you see somebody that needs help, help. And, and those kind of things and that work ethic, honestly, I think is what got me to where I am today because a lot of the success that I've had, whether it's in hunting, whether it's in my relationships with my family and my wife, whether it's in business and, and working and just getting started and doing what I loved, I think a lot of that came with, that ability to handle hard work and understand what it means to work hard and, and how to do that. So I think that that's probably the biggest takeaway of, of the person and the reason that I'm here. So if, you know, if you've got a family or whatever, I think you just can't put enough emphasis on teaching your kids a good work ethic and, and then again, being there for them and, and helping them and I kind of pursue their passions or whatever that is. So that was a great question. And now we're going to jump in to our callers. Welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Who am I talking to? This is Caleb. Hey, Caleb. How's it going, man? Doing all right. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. What's your question? Yeah, so um, basically, you know, today I didn't draw uh, Colorado elk, and so now I'm starting to look for the over-the-counter options. And, uh, you know, just starting to kind of weigh in um, basically the units, if it's better to have a high a high density or high hunter density unit with high success versus maybe a unit that has lower hunter densities but also lower success and just trying to figure out how to walk that line there any of your thoughts on that i mean that's a great question so i guess first i'd have to ask a couple of follow-up questions are you do you live in colorado no so i actually live in texas um this will be my first elk hunt i should have probably put that in there um i've been busting my butt for uh to get in shape for an elk hunt this year um and just after several years of buying points put in thought i was gonna draw no big deal but yeah so i'm you know probably 13 hours or so from the nearest yep you know solid huntable unit yeah and that's like the reason i asked is because you know i i kind of choose different things based on you know what i would know about the hunter and the unit and other things in your in your instance i would maybe go with the higher hunter success area because i think a lot of the struggle of elk hunting is finding elk 
And, you know, in areas, so me personally, I would definitely pick the lower hunter participation areas with the lower success because I was like, Hey, I'm going to bank on what I know. And I especially do that in areas that I'm nearby and can check out a lot and I can put in extra time. And so I can, I can make that time that I do have super valuable. And those areas to me are way better because I don't have people bumping into me and you know, whatever, I can get away from the crowds a little bit. Even in areas that are very popular, you can get away from crowds. You just kind of have to do the work that it takes to do that. But however, I would say, you know, going in cold turkey and being a first elk hunt, you kind of want to swing the odds in your favor of that step one, find the elk. Like I like to, with my clients when I'm guiding, I always kind of make this joke is like elk hunting is three easy steps. Find the elk, shoot the elk, pack the elk back to the truck. Sometimes the gap between those three steps is large. But honestly, when it comes to elk hunting, finding the elk can be one of the hardest things for most. Like step zero to one can be the challenge for a lot of people. Areas that show good success, you know, you're you're looking at statistically, there's a lot of people that are in the same situation you are and they're finding success. So I think that I would probably personally pick that based off of kind of the information you're giving me. And I think that once you got that under your belt, maybe you could then, if you were to do a follow-up hunt or something like that, you could either choose same area or maybe say, Hey, I kind of figured this out. Now maybe I'll try an area that has a little bit harder hunting, but maybe fewer people. Um, but it also depends on the type of hunt you want, right? So sometimes you go, look, I just want to get away. I want to get away from people and I just want to have an elk tag in my pocket. And in that case, you kind of got to go with the other unit. That makes sense. Yeah, and I was kind of thinking, you know, with the higher, with with some of these uh, higher hunter density, but also higher success units, like they are units I could probably draw year after year in some way, shape or form. Um, Yep. Whether that be, you know, actually on a first rifle or an arch, you know, go hunting go hunt them archery or second rifle or whatever. So yeah, that makes sense. Awesome. Well, best of luck to you, man. And keep me posted on how the hunt goes. I'll be uh, interested to hear how it pans out. Yeah. Thank you. All right. We're going to go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the live wild podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Remy, this is Ethan from Wisconsin. How's it going? Yeah, pretty good. How's it going, Ethan? Uh, Not too bad. Uh, Say my question uh, for elk hunting guard to um, I know you rep the day six arrows, and I kind of built a set that are a little bit heavier than I thought this would be. Uh, so my question to you is how do you plan the option of having a lighter arrow that's going to shoot uh, faster? It works out uh, ranging an elk every single time, take a few steps at that full drop versus <clears throat> the impact of that your arrow. Yeah. So unfortunately it cut out a little bit there. So I'm just going to try to paraphrase the question from what I could gather. It could be my service. It could be your service. I'm kind of, I don't know. I I live my life in an area where I don't get great service. So I'm running off of a satellite right now. Um, So hey, if anybody listening, if it drops, just hang on the line, I'll call back in. I I think you were talking, you're talking about heavy arrows and you're saying, how do you balance that weight with a lot of drop because that arrow is heavy and then having you know obviously the downfalls of a lot of drop are if that elk's two or three yards further you're talking three inches or more off of point of impact is that kind of the summary of the question yeah that was pretty much right on perfect sweet yeah so you know for me here's the balance that i've found over the years is And obviously the last year is kind of an anomaly because I was shooting with a mouth tab. I still decided to shoot a heavy arrow and I'm really glad I did, but I had to be very precise on my yardage. And 
to be honest, I actually, one thing that I worked on a lot, aside from just shooting with the mouth tab, was range estimation because I felt like in the past, maybe I didn't really think about it as much. And I did a lot of range estimation practice so I could get the best guess if something happened. And to be honest, like, uh, you know, for, for a long time, I did a lot of practice just knowing the range, knowing the range. And when I started shooting with the mouth tab, I did a lot more unranged practice. And there was two animals that I took that I did not get an accurate range on. One was an elk, one was a caribou. And my range estimation was perfectly on. And so that I attribute to that because if I was off a little bit, I, w- I probably would have impacted completely different. But also one thing that I've been doing over the years too is kind of increasing the poundage of my bow to make up for that heavy arrow. So I've got speed on my side and then I've got, uh, with my normal setup, I've got, I personally have a pretty long draw length. So I've got a lot of extra energy. So I don't have, even with my heavy arrow setup, I don't really have as much drop as other people might. So for me personally, the setup works really good because it's kind of the, the best combination of all things. Now I would say, there is that balance, right? So you kind of have to know your bow setup and go, hey, how much drop do I want? I kind of err on the side of the heavier arrow personally, but there are some hunts that I start thinking about. You go, okay, well, what are some things that happen? You know, a lot of times animals will duck the string. So even if you are a little bit off on the long side, which I generally don't overestimate for me, personally or whatever but if it ducks then you're still in the money that's a terrible way to think about it though because it's not very precise i I definitely see the benefit to both kinds of arrows and we're gonna i'm actually got a podcast coming up where we're gonna talk with the guy that founded day six arrows just to kind of get his philosophy and, and some of the the ways that he's built these arrows But I've just noticed, you know, I think the trade-off for me, I'd rather have that good penetration and rather have that arrow fly through and and if I hit a bone, go through it. So I just kind of err on the side of heavy, but it is a balance. Like I guess I've talked in circles because it is it is kind of a balance where you're you're messing with it enough to get that perfect where it's like not too much, not too little, if that makes sense. One thing I've noticed though as well is the my my the quietness of my setup with a heavy arrow I get less animals jumping the string and that to me is that is also a trade off where if I know the range and I know they aren't going to jump as regularly then I've got I've just got an advantage there plus if they do and I hit bone I know that I'm going to like have way better penetration with that heavy arrow cuz I just got way more kinetic energy Right that makes a lot of sense yeah I got about a 30 30- draw and about eight pound bow so my air about upper 600 so i think i was right at that sweet spot so was, that's about what i was thinking too well if you don't mind saying what is your uh air setup kind of way yeah so right now i think my arrow setup is like right around 600 uh 600 grains so okay. yeah with the okay. full deal so and that is let's see i was like 580 i think with my it didn't change much, honestly, but I mean, I normally shoot like 600 grains at 30 inch draw, 80 pound bow. Now this year I'll be shooting like 70 pounds, 30 inch draw, and I'll probably be shooting like that same 580 to 600 range. So I'll get a little bit more drop in, but I'm willing to sacrifice that for that penetration. All right, right on. Well, thanks for the information. I appreciate it. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. All right, I'm going to go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking with? Uh, this is Mike calling from Alabama. How are you? 
Yeah, pretty good. How's it going, Mike? Hey, going pretty good. Um, I guess for my call, it's uh, I'm a I'll be a first time elk hunter. I've lived obviously South Alabama. We don't have much here. Um, and for the first time, I'm going with a guide service just to kind of learn the ropes and go with some friends. And outside of the right, so fitness, bow shooting, things like that. Just looking to see what your recommendations are. Having been a pretty prominent guide on, you know, what can I do to, to help ensure success of a very inexperienced elk hunter hunting with a guide? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's always little things that I kind of wish people did. And I think one of the big things is just learning as much as you can about what you're doing, because there's so many times that I've guidance, like a guy's like, Hey, I want to go archery elk hunting. And unfortunately, so learning about it in a way where you kind of really get the realistic expectation of what to expect and the way things run. Right. So when I started guiding, the big thing was like real tree monster bulls and Primos videos. Right. And those are great. Those are some of the like best, like, I just, I loved that stuff too, but we would get guys that would come in and they would just assume that like, like the guy's just going to call the elk in, the elk's going to come screaming, bugling in. And it's like easy peasy one, two, three. And it was like the worst. It's like, if I could have erased all those things, I probably would have, because we would have had more success because they had unrealistic expectations of how elk hunts run. Right. Because it's like, it's a video that shows you the, the sweetest clip of things that have happened probably on like a really expensive private land ranch. I don't know where you're whatever, but like in some of the best elk hunting places in the world. And the reality of elk hunting is most of the elk hunts people go on are in general or over the counter units. And you know what I mean? So it's, that part right there is just understanding the type of hunt you're on and then the realistic expectation of how elk react. Uh, it takes a lot to get a bull to come in. Sometimes, sometimes it just works out like magic, but a lot of the times there's a lot of things that go into it. And sometimes it just comes down to the right setup. A couple of things that I would suggest is like the, the hunter setup is huge. So if I'm calling, especially if it's like a, a calling scenario, not boxing yourself in, in the brush. I kind of think of elk as like the T-Rex of the animal kingdom. If you've seen the movie Jurassic Park, if the, if you aren't moving, the T-Rex <laughs> doesn't see you. Now you don't want to be stupid. Okay. Cause like it doesn't work all the time, but you want to position yourself in a way where you aren't going to get stuck behind something to get a shot off. So setting up in a way where like the guy's calling and you have logical lanes to draw and shoot. You want to have some kind of cover. You want to have something to draw behind, but you kind of want to anticipate what the elk's doing and then move accordingly. So many times I'll like set a guy up and be like, okay. And then I drop back and he just stayed exactly where I was, but he knew that the elk was moving up a little further. And so to kind of reposition himself a little better, he would have got a shot, but instead there was a tree between him and the elk and he got no shot. The elk's within 20 yards. The guy did his job, but the hunter didn't really put themselves in a position to make a good shot. So kind of just, you know, understanding that, Hey, there's times where I need to position myself good. But then the caveat to that is when you're positioning yourself, be very aware of what's around you. Don't be looking at the ground, look around, make sure you aren't going to get spotted or, you know, spook something. And then the other thing is kind of the same, be prepared to stalk there. It just, opens up more opportunities you can't just rely on the guy calling i'm assuming it's archery hunting right i think you said that but i just want to make sure i'm not talking about yeah, it is okay. yeah it's, it's archery hunting um and it's yeah. over you know it's it's general tag area in colorado yeah. so you know there's going to be high pressure and all that stuff and you know and i'm doing it more for yep. the experience than the expectation so i think I'm, I'm hopefully going into it with the right mindset that 
you know, whether we get one or not or what, you know, size, none of that matters to me. It's more for the experience yep. side. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm, it's a gift to myself. I've been in the army for 20 years and I'm retiring here in a couple months and something I've always oh, wanted awesome. to do. And, uh, so I'm just looking forward to it and whether we get, you know, are successful or not, just the experience. And I just want to make sure that I'm as prepared as I can be to not screw the situation up if I get put in the situation. So. Yeah, very cool. No, and and thank you for your service. You know, I think that's one of the things, you know, it's, it allows us to do the things that we do. So thank you very much for your service. I, I think that, you know, just being able to stock in to like pay attention when you're moving in is big. Cause like, there's been times where in the past I kind of changed my, I used to like do a lot of like get into position, have the guy sneak in. And then it didn't work out a lot. And it was give me opportunities because when the guys were crawling in, they just weren't paying enough attention. They would be looking at the ground. They wouldn't be paying attention to where the elk are and weren't moving right. And they would blow the chance. So I kind of changed my guiding philosophy over the years to just call elk in. And, and that's very kind of like, it's a lot of pressure on the guide and it can be difficult, but not every yeah. situation is great for calling elk. So the more versatile you can be, is good. And if you have the opportunity to stock in, you're just, I think just paying attention to the little details, like keep your head up, look around, use your binoculars, don't get busted, but you know, move in that pace where you're moving fast enough and slow enough in the right times. And, and just kind of by, I mean, like, honestly, listening to this podcast and gleaning the, the tips that we give, I think makes a big difference yeah. because it just gives you that expectation of like, this, these are the things that I should look out for. And by doing that, I think you're going to be in, in a pretty good uh, pretty good scenario. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the information and, uh, and you taking my call. Yeah. Thank you very much. And, uh, keep me posted. Let me know how it goes. Will do. Thanks for having me. Take care. Yep. You too. All right. Let's jump on to our next caller here. Welcome to the live wild podcast. Who am I talking with? Hey, Remy, this is Tim calling from Oregon. Hey Tim, how's it going? Good, good, man. Um, I guess my question is, you know, on the West Coast here, we've been hit really bad with these massive fire complexes in the last few years. Um, yep. Mostly hunting blacktails, bench legs up in the Cascades. I guess I'm just curious, you know, what your strategy would be for hunting the, the 200 to 400,000 acre burns that we have been going on out here. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question. And honestly, like hunting burns is one of the things that I love more than anything. Like, I, I actively seek out burns. I actually plan a lot of hunts around some of those big burns. You know, I, I grew up guiding and hunting, uh, you know, 200,000 acre burn and that burn made the hunting so much better. And there's a reason for that. It opened up a lot of terrain. It was previously heavily timbered. It, it created really good habitat for elk and deer. Everything flourished. The elk population exploded. The size of deer got better. Like it benefited in every way in a combination of having a fairly recent burn one to two years old, plus that additional moisture, like they're going to be popping off. And I, I mean, if I could like choose where to hunt right now, it would be in some of those areas, especially the areas that didn't get hit hard by winters, but also have a lot of moisture. So the thing that I'm looking for, there's a couple things. One of the things that I really stress about hunting burns is like, you can have a 400,000 acre fire and some areas will be scorched to where the ground will not grow anything for seven years honestly but there yeah. are other like not all it, it the way a fire burns is, isn't just like a swath of like burning everything 
it's it's a it's a mosaic patchwork of burn and unburn. There's areas that get charred. There's areas that get you know zapped completely, and then there's areas that like leave these islands of habitat. Now, blacktails okay. are, are an animal that prefer that security, right? So, if I'm talking about blacktails, I'm talking about elk. I'm talking about mule deer. I kind of I kind of hone in on what are their habits and the things that they really love. Now, blacktails do really love that cover. But there are places in those burns where you're going to be able to find that the fringes. And so I look for an area that's burned because that it, it, it has like an island of, of cover in it. And th- the reason for that is it allows that security, but then it opens up ample food sources, especially elk are one of the prime species that benefit from this because they're grazers, that green grass, all that green up, super high dense in nutrients, and they're very, very attracted to it. And then they're still going to have bedding and other things. Uh, another thing that I look to is if I was specifically honing in on blacktails, you know, areas that, especially in some of that, like, more cascade region places get burned right but the the areas around creeks often have more water and those areas are like brushier habitat so you can look at a mountain that you used to be timbered and you can look at the drainages of the water and you're going to see things growing back pretty fast like uh, and and stuff that didn't ever get burned because it was too wet to burn so you're going to see a lot of habitat around those like water draws and so and around that you're going to get all that other kind of growth that also is going to conceal animals as well. So it opens it up to really good glassing and really being able to, to focus on those areas too. So those would be the, my primary places that I would focus on. And I definitely would suggest, you know, some of that's hard to tell, like that's where good scouting comes in or, or just like looking over a lot of different country in there and figuring out where's the best place. Sometimes, I mean, yeah. what I did in some burns was just go back to where I'd seen elk and or deer and, and hunted in the past and continue to hunt in there. I think people don't realize how, I think we think fires affect animals way more than they do. I was talking with a biologist in Idaho this last year and they had some collared deer in this just big fire in the cellway and some other units that they had deer collared and big fires. And it's like, those deer were back in there three days later. It was insane. You go like, you'd think that they would just run for the hills and they don't really displace that much. They move around the fire. Some get caught and those are just like when firestorms and other things happen, but it kind of blew them away saying like these animals, like once that fire is gone, they move right back in there. They didn't move that far. They just, you know, people were saying like, oh, it's going to push them out into other units and other things. And it, it just honestly didn't because fires do burn in these like, patchwork the deer and the elk and whatever they just get out of the way of the fire and they go back to their places and and if their habitat was burned in a way that they didn't like they just move somewhere else nearby so it's just something to think about if you've got places that worked good before the burn they're probably going to be better after yeah nice yeah i actually ran up there today to you know just check it out and i found a couple of those little islands green that are left over and uh yeah i'm pretty excited you know yeah yeah, I think it's uh, – I'll be interesting to see how it goes, but I think there's going to be some pretty good hunting in places that traditionally people thought was bad hunting, especially like in California and other stuff. I, I mean, I think that there's going to be some stuff turned up in the next few years that like it's just going to come on strong because there's – a lot of stuff has been opened up. Honestly, there's a lot of – I hate to say it, but like a lack of forestry in there in a lot of places caused – 
you know, massive fires, a combination yeah. of that and drought. But to clean it up a bit is going to be huge and to like provide – it's really good for hunting access of like being able to glass and, and animals are going to benefit. And I think that in the next three to five years, we're going to see some places that traditionally weren't considered great hunting destinations kind of start to pop off. Good deal, man. Well, I appreciate it. Yep. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. All right. We're going to jump into another question here. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, this is Stephen from Idaho. Hey, Stephen. How's it going, man? Hey, doing pretty good. Hey, so my question is about mountain pronghorn hunting over in Idaho. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be up to about 6,000 feet. Normally, I hunt down in the desert, and so this will be kind of my first escapade into kind of a mountain pronghorn. Um, I've done a lot of scouting on the area. There's a few different river valleys that come through the unit with uh, wide open flats, and that's kind of the predominant area to where I'm seeing all the pronghorn. Uh, what are some kind of like tips and things that I should uh, do, kind of look for, you know? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're kind of honed in on a good area. You know, one of the things like that's actually the kind of strategy that I take on a lot of my spot and stock archery pronghorn hunts for a couple of reasons. I've shot a lot of pronghorns in the mountains and I think it kind of gets overlooked. The densities aren't as great, but the one thing that I look for is I kind of find where the concentrations of antelope are. And then I start to kind of glass those, the more like broken country fringes around the places where I'm seeing the concentrations. Because what I try to look for is those like really good stocking opportunities. The last couple ones that I've taken have all been like, I mean, I shot a pronghorn two years ago. It was essentially off a cliff. I was on a cliff. It was like, it just, you know, it was hanging out in the valley below. It was in these big wide opens. So I started glassing in those areas where they're around, checking all the little pockets and found one that was in a really good place to stock. So that's what I look for because I'm assuming, you know, you're planning on spot and stock hunting, but you can yeah. also, I mean, sometimes, sometimes those areas, they, just like the mountains have more water and this year, especially, I feel like there's going to be, every spring's going to be just pumping. So that's the way that I would play it. And I just kind of tend to gravitate toward where the highest concentrations of antelope and then where are they going to be stockable a couple years ago i was just thinking of a, a place and it was like big open flat tons of antelope it's like okay the antelope are here but there just wasn't really good place to to do any stocks it was just wide open i i attempted a lot of stocks and blew a lot of stocks uh, so I, I just readjusted and went you know hey here's some where these valleys are leading into and there was fewer antelope in there but there was better stocking opportunity when I did find antelope. And some of the best antelope I've taken have been in that type of country, honestly, because I think they're just, they're just a way they're whatever. And it just gives you a little bit better opportunity. So I kind of look for the country where they're congregating and then the country around where they're congregating that has good stocking opportunities. Um, do you think I'll be able to find the deer in kind of, or the pronghorn in the foothills up above? So the river Valley is like, maybe two miles wide um and it runs mm, maybe 25 miles like that you know two to five miles yep. wide at the max um yeah i predominantly i see them all in there um do you think i'm gonna find them you know in say a you know 500 to a thousand feet elevation on the foothills on the side or do you think they're living most of their life down in the flat they live a lot of their life in the flats, but you absolutely will find them in those foothills. And that's what I'm talking about. I was like, I kind of concentrate on the ones in the foothills 
or I'll watch from afar, like fine groups. Sometimes they just, you know, like they'll just stay out there. They'll stay out there. They'll bed out there. It's because they're safe. Their best, their best defense right. is their eyesight and their speed. But there are like, you'll find areas where they kind of move through. And what I look for too is like those, those good saddles in through areas. Like there's one place that I was going to glass and it just happened to be the saddle between two valleys two like lower elevation units. And I noticed it's like, this is the zone where the antelope are cruising through. And it was perfect because they had multiple rim rocks. It was a steep Canyon and, you know, snuck in on some that were bedded in there and shot one of my best Idaho archery pronghorn that way. So there is, I definitely kind of concentrate on those foothills. Yeah. It sounds like it might be similar kind of area where I'm going. Um, Okay. Awesome. Well, fantastic. I appreciate it. And uh, good luck on that sheep hunt this year. Yeah. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Best of luck to you and keep me posted on how it goes. All right. Let's jump into our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking with? Hey, this is Steven from Arizona. Steven, how's it going, man? Pretty good. How you doing, Remy? Yeah, good. What's your uh, What's your question? Um, yeah, I'm fairly new to I'm hunting a uh, coos whitetail up here. Yeah. And uh, I've been hunting them for about four years now, and I found a spot that's extremely deep. Uh, I, I hunted it. I had two, two years in a row I had tags. First year I went up there, didn't see any hunters, didn't hear shots, nothing. Saw a lot of bucks, a lot of small ones. I passed on everything, came home with nothing. Uh, spent five days there. And then last year I got the tag again, decided to give it another shot. And I, on the fifth day, I found a great buck, good buck. Um, it's pretty thick there, but I did find a spot where I can get up on the rocks and do a little bit of glassing, but it's, you know, a hit or miss couple openings. Um, I glassed him up and he, he was in the thick, So I kind of just pinpointed where he was at and waited there for about five hours. Um, he did come out and this is in November, by the way. Um, okay. He did come out and he was looking at a doe and kind of chasing this doe around. So I made a move. I went in to get closer to get a shot off. And as I was going in there, I jumped up another buck that was smaller and he spooked that bigger buck completely out of there. And I ended up shooting the, the smaller buck, still a great buck. But so my question is, I can't get that bigger buck out of my head. Um, I'm probably going to pull that tag again this year. Um, how do you go about this? Is that buck going to be in the same area? Um, what do you think? Yeah, it's very likely that that deer will be in the same area. The thing about coos deer is they have like this small home range. And I know guys that are, are like real serious about their coos deer hunting, they'll watch multiple bucks year after year and kind of know where they are. I've got a friend that killed an absolute giant deer that was essentially living within, I mean, he, he ended up like seeing it one year and then killing it in the same bed two years later, I think it was. And it was a lot bigger. No two way. Years later. The, the trouble with the, it is like it's thick country. They hide very well. The way that I would hunt that is I would kind of, kind of, I would be in the same general area. And there's obviously something that the deer like about that. Now here's a couple of things that could make it 
necessarily not true is like he could have gone on a doe and been running that doe for a long ways but they do have like a i would say like a one to two mile range generally speaking um that they hold so i would just really get into position to kind of watch those multiple areas maybe not that exact same place but i would definitely check that same place you know and and just be patient like the best coos deer hunters are guys that can sit down and get on a good knob and really pick it apart i've been in places hunting coos deer and it's like there's five of us watching a hillside for all day and then it's like oh there's a buck and it's a you know, hundred inch coos deer buck and it was on that hill all day long we just didn't see it you know and it could have been a hill that we were watching for three or four days so I, I and I feel like it's like that deer was probably still there the whole time. So I think that's one unique thing about coos deer is they can be very territorial or they have like a smaller home range than other deer and it can play to your benefit, but also they're very hard to find. So just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. I know though that it's a mental game when you're like, it should be there. And it could have maybe when you saw it, he just ran there because that's where he was cruising, chasing a doe because they do move around a lot more during the rut. Even yeah, though that's a little early did, for rut, but you know, I did glass the same exact spot four days in a row, and I told myself I'm going to give it one more day before I try a new spot around the area. And I just happened to catch the tip of his horns. Um, and there is there yeah. is a lot of does in the same exact spot, but I just didn't never seen a buck till that day. Um, also, it is fairly close to a water hole, so I was thinking that might help them stay around that area. Yeah, I mean, if it's got everything they need, you know, they'll, they'll bounce. The thing about that country too, though, is like, you know, you talk about one or two mile home range. Like that's a that's a big area when there's 15 draws within it and around the other side of the mountain and over the top. Like it can be really big country, right? So that's a pretty big, I mean, it doesn't seem like a square mile doesn't seem like that much, but that's 640 acres. There can be 20 canyons in some of that country in that. So, you know, it is one of those things where he could, maybe he's got a better little canyon that he prefers, but I think you've honed in on a good spot. I would continue to kind of pick it apart and maybe just learn other places in that area real good. And then maybe think about like, you know, really pay attention to what the wind's doing that day. Cause like, just like everything, those coos deer, like the wind coming down, the mountain toward them where they're bedded facing down and they like to bed in some thicker cover. So you know, find that like, Hey, if, if that particular hill doesn't necessarily have the good wind for bedding and shade, maybe adjust your play onto a different Canyon and kind of pinpoint those places that like they're going to prefer and then really focus in on those zones. Awesome. Nice, man. That's, that sounds good. That's great advice. Yeah. Perfect. Well, best of luck to you and definitely keep me posted. I'll be excited to see uh, a good buck pick this uh, this season. Yeah, I will too. I'll let you know, man. I'll keep you posted. Thanks for taking the call, man. Yep. Have a good one. You too. All right. We're going to go to a couple more callers here. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking with? Matt. Hey, Matt. Where are you calling in from? Idaho. Oh, right on. Uh, what's your question? Well, I'm going to get my uh, summer scouting started. And my spring bear tag is still available or still yep. open, I guess. And I'm just kind of curious, middle of June, I mean, everything's kind of melted off. Everything's a good feeding area. Are there any areas that you would kind of focus more on that time of year or just kind of? Yeah. So, 
honestly, I mean, I feel like June is a good time to actually scout for deer. When I'm like guiding in areas for like particularly trophy deer, I do a lot of my spring bear hunting is actually how I find a lot of the deer that we end up taking later in the season. And the, the reason for that is I kind of call it like riding the green wave back. Uh, June actually kind of mimics some of the things that you're going to find in October, depending like, especially this year, like as that snow line starts to decrease and, and deer will start to follow that that good green up back. And that happens to be where bears are living. Now, as you get later into June, you're going to, bears are going to kind of concentrate in a lot of those deer fawning areas, uh, picking up stragglers. And I personally like to hunt those anyways, because I, I feel like I'm doing the, the mule deer population a good service. But, you know, I've actually found that like one of the best deer I found two years ago was I was in an area that happened to be a good fawning area found a bachelor group of bucks already one of the deer was growing out and was like holy crap this deer's already 140 inches and it's june um and <laughs> i found that deer in that exact same canyon i never saw him i kept looking for him the rest of the year this was a deer that i knew it was migrating i found that deer i didn't see him any other time of the year and then come november i found him in that same exact place actually like first week in november this is like november 4th and, and then continually found them in there. So there is that kind of philosophy of where you can, you can scout in the springtime. And as that, that green up starts to go and, and chase that snow back up the mountain, you're going to start finding animals in those places. And they start following that snow line because that's where that nutrient dense stuff is. And those animals that are maybe more transitionary are moving there too. But another thing is like, if you're hunting a big Canyon, you go like, hey, I, I'm seeing these deer in here. You know that they're probably summering up at the top of this canyon or in and around it, especially if it's like a big, long, you know, like a big, long wilderness type canyon. You're like, hey, they're probably summering in the head of this big thing and they're probably going to be in here somewhere later in the season. So that's kind of, I, I actually do like scouting in June and it's fun because you can kind of combine bears as well. So I, I think that like, you know, yeah. knowing where they might be kind of depends on the area and, and, how that area hunts and where you're looking, you know, if you're just like, uh, in a mid range, like a mid elevation unit with a lot of logging roads and you bump into a buck, it's like, ah, I don't know if you're going to find that deer again, but it gives you an idea of what's there. You know, yeah. And no, there's not a whole yeah. lot of logging, but so, you know, it's just, I've, I've been in the unit before and the time of year, I mean, most of the snow is pretty well gone. Yep. Um, even on North facing slopes and everything, I mean, pretty much everything's melted off. So I don't know if there's, Kind of just the canyons, or if there's like a steeper slope or shallower slopes, or yeah, I mean, you know, like I, I personally would probably target a few of the canyons because you know, like it's a good time of year to see what's in those canyons. Although they 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 start to get pretty brushy this time of year, so it makes like spotting kind of tough. They're they're a little bit better yeah. earlier. But if you do find something in like a where it's like, hey, this is a this is like a, a keystone habitat for these animals. This is where they would live within this canyon. Um, it it kind of helps pinpoint a few areas for you, or at least just kind of gives you an idea of some populations in a particular spot. All righty. Yeah, right on. Well, I hope that helps, and best of luck to you. All righty, man. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, we're gonna jump into our next caller here. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking with? Uh, this is Matt from Nevada. Hey, Matt. How's it going, man? Oh, good. It's actually me. Cool. Um, it's gone great. Uh, okay, I got a question about meat processing. So, 
Um, I got an elk two years ago, and uh, it was my first elk. Um, and we decided to, to try to process the meat at home um, on our own. And so here's what I ran into. Like, um, I think I, I, I like trimmed off too much meat that I could have like saved for grind and ended up turning it into dog food because I was worried about, I don't know, like, do you, like, the question is like, how much do, do I, do I have to, do you have to trim off your outer layer of meat or meat that gets exposed to like some dirt or leaves or that kind, or that kind of thing? Or can you just wash it off or do you take a torch to it or what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I definitely, so I wouldn't take a torch to it. I think like, you know, it, it depends. So you are going to have a little bit of loss with some of that stuff. Now, what I generally do is like when I'm, I, I would leave like the, like, let's say it's a, a hind quarter, right? Whatever's, you know, that's one thing, like how good you take care of it in the field kind of depends on how it comes back. Right. So you want to yeah. make sure you don't like get it in the dirt. Don't get that stuff on it. Of course it happens every once in a while. You know, one thing like you could get some tarps and other things to kind of help out with that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like, so that silver skin, I definitely always trim off that silver skin. What you're going to notice is like a lot of the stuff that sticks to the meat or whatever is going to kind of first stick to that silver skin and, and that sinewy stuff that you're going to remove anyways. So you don't really yeah. lose that much meat doing that. Okay. And that's okay. You know what I mean? Also like use a really good, thin blade knife, very sharp knife. And you can cut that top layer off so thin that you, you re, it's really not affecting your cuts so much. Yeah. But I think like, honestly, when I'm, when I'm making grind or other things, I don't want that silver skin in there. I don't want that sinew in there. It sometimes too okay. depends on how good your grinder is. I definitely don't put wild game fat in my grind. Uh, some sinew and other things I'll run through because I've got a really good, like made with meat, horse and a half power grinder that just like rips through it. You wouldn't even know if that silver skin was in there. So kind of that sometimes depends, but it does clog up a lot of like inferior grinders. You know, I used to have run like a yeah. KitchenAid grinder. It's the bane of my existence, man. Like is the worst thing. Yeah. Cause it just, it jams the thing up. It sucks. It makes the process terrible. And the end product wasn't ever as good because it was slow. So it'd render the fat in there and whatever. So that's like a completely other topic of like when you're grinding and how you get the, um, a better end product. But I would definitely say like, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to just being careful in the field, but you know, I don't necessarily, you can, you can wash your meat off right away. Um, yeah. if it's been like, I, I tried it, but you got to make sure that it dries. And for me, what I generally do is I allow like that top layer to kind of crust on whatever. And then I, I'm shaving off that silver skin and anything anyway. So that's kind of my part of the butcher butchering process. Okay. All right, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the call and, uh, yeah. thank you very much for the question. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the podcast. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I didn't grow up hunting, so I'm learning it from my friends and from, uh, and from information you put out. So I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Well, before I let you go here, you were lucky caller number seven. So I have all, right. all the calls pop up in an order. I don't take them in order, but the number that is there, 
every week is number seven. Uh, caller number seven gets the prize. I don't, I don't actually do them in order. Uh, I try to save number seven for the end. You are the lucky winner of the Stone Glacier Avail Pack. So congratulations on that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty. Right. It's a sweet pack. It's a. It's great for scouting, for ripping around. It's lightweight, and uh, I. It's one of my favorite packs. Like it's the one that I always have at the ready. I've got. I've got it right now with my binos and my scope in it. So it's like it's always in my truck. You never know when you got a like a impromptu mountain run. It's a, right. it's a great pack for that. So, uh, congratulations on that, and thank you Stone Glacier for for that pack. Uh, if you don't, uh, do you have social media? Uh, I do Instagram or access to it just uh, before like right after this send me a direct message and then I'll get your information and I will and we'll get it all sent out and squared away and it was Matt correct Matt from Nevada just on Instagram or something yep just a direct message on Instagram okay cool right on Remy appreciate it that's awesome awesome thanks Matt yep congratulations okay cool thanks all right, before we go, I'll take one last caller here. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking with? Hey, man, this is Jared from Texas. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. How's it going, Jared? It's going well. Hey, thanks for taking the call. I'll keep this quick. I know I'm your last caller. First of all, shout out to uh, your wife for letting you do this around dinner time. My wife is currently fielding crying babies and poopy diapers. So appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I was like, it, it was like, she was like, as long as it's not around bedtime, you know, that's the, that's the clincher, man. Like getting them to bed, wrangling them in. <laughs> so dude, it's, it's, uh, it's central time in Texas and we're in, we're in peak bedtime mode. I just ran out of the house. Oh, hopefully yeah. I'm not in trouble when I go back in. <laughs> Perfect. All right. We'll make it quick. Quick rapid fire questions to follow up on some of the other great questions that have been asked. First of all, if you had to pick uh, years for burns that you would hunt this year, what would be like the one, two or three years you would focus on? Yeah. I mean, I like a burn. I think it kind of peaks at, well, it doesn't necessarily peak, but here's a fresh burn. Let's say it's an area where you're, you've hunted a lot. Then I would say, two to three years. If you want like the maximum benefit out of a burn, I look for seven years. Seven and there's years. a reason okay. for that is it allows a five-year cycle for the boom in population. And then also there's still remaining benefits within seven years. I think like that five to seven year range is a really good, I would say probably five to seven actually, but they kind of peak at seven. It depends on the burn though, honestly. But I also don't discount new burns because there's there's something with new burns where there's a lot of nutrients in the ground, and it kind of allows for you to get in on that burn before it gets really, in in some ways, popular. Because what happens is those populations get higher, people start hearing about the good hunting in there. So I kind of personally like to hunt them when the population is still what it was. Maybe it, it starts to grow a little bit, but you aren't really focusing on those younger age class animals, but it's allowing you the benefits of that nutrient for the animals that were there. So the first couple of years can be really good. And then that five to seven year range. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, next quick one. And this can be a one word answer. Um, I also just got a day six setup. It's going to be heavier. It'll be for elk. I'm running an ultra light setup. I use for tack. I've got an axis hunt in two weeks. Would you stay light or would you go heavy for axis? I know you have a bunch of experience with them and they're jumpy. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's weird because like I've shot lighter arrows for them and I think that you want no jump. 
and you kind of want to get close. I think they're going to hear that arrow. Like if you're shooting at range, they're going to hear that arrow anyways. Honestly, a fixed blade, like a fixed two blade, I've had a lot of success with because it makes less noise. A four fletch and a heavier arrow, I noticed less jumps when I switched my arrow. And I feel like that has helped me with some success. And then just like that idea of there's going to be access to you. They're standing out there at a certain distance that you're like, ooh, I could shoot at that. And then you're they're gone before your arrow ever gets there. They're very jumpy. So like getting in close and having a quiet setup, big, big bonuses. Okay. Well, thank you. Main question, and this is more generalized. Yep. It actually goes back to your first caller. I, too, just got shut down on a Colorado elk draw. Um, I've got a Utah mule deer tag. I'm probably going to go Colorado OTC elk. I'm starting from scratch on the elk front. I've heard you and many talk about being able to go into places and units that other people aren't physically capable of doing. I'm preparing myself physically to be able to do that. But I also hear a bunch of people like you and other guys that have been in the field for decades talk about the overlooked areas that are within a couple hundred yards of the highway. So my question for you would be, how often are you switching spots if you're peak rut hunting and you're not turning up any bugles, you're not in any action? Daily, multiple times a day. I, okay. I mean, I, I run and gun when it's talking about elk season. Like I might go to as many places as I can hit until I figure out where those elk are. And then generally when I find those elk, I just beat them to death in some ways. Like I'll just hit it hard. Cause like, once you find where they're at, they're there. And then when they're not there, then I, I move. But there's sometimes where it's like, I'll go three days to find where the elk are, find the elk, and then I'll hunt like when I'm guiding or whatever. And then we'll hunt those same essentially elk for seven days or the rest of the season as long as we can kind of stay on them. And it's like, that's the zone. So I, I really emphasize like just finding where the elk are. Okay, switch it up. Sounds good. Hey, this is actually the second time you've taken my call. I called back in October. You helped me find some success on a Texas public man, public land mule deer hunt. Actually sent you oh, some, awesome. sent you some pics on on Instagram. So check it out. Hopefully yeah. connect and uh, appreciate it. Perfect. Well, congratulations on that, man, and thanks for calling back. Yeah, thanks Best for all you doing, you. man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Have a good one. All right. Well, that concludes our live call-in Q&A. Thank you guys so much for calling in. Now, as promised, I, I also have, for those of you that missed out on the prize today, Stone Glacier gave us a bino harness to give away. I really like to be able to give back to you guys that really support this podcast. I just, it just means so much to me. So thank you guys. Everyone that calls in, everyone that jumps in, drops comments, ratings, all that good stuff. It means a lot to us. So thank you guys so much. For this one, I just thought we'd make it where it's like, hey, the people that that listen to the podcast are rewarded. So the way that we're going to do it, we're going to kind of do it in a combination of Instagram and the podcast. Just make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. There's actually no way for me to verify that, but I guess I could, I'll message you and be like, hey, show me that you're subscribed if you win. Uh, just so it's like, hey, the, the subscribers get the benefit of winning. So subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Doesn't matter where, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, whatever. And then just if you've got Instagram, we'll do it on Instagram because it's easy for me. Just either in a story or a post, take a, you can do whatever. You can take a photo of the podcast, whatever you want to do. Be creative with it. Some people record video. Like I'll get tagged in things of people listening to the podcast. Just do that tag myself and stone glacier in it will be the ones that see it. That's just so I can find them again. I'm going to compile those. I've actually got like a 
We've got a, a way to, to pick a winner. So everybody that does that between when you're listening to this and Friday, the following Friday, uh, we'll pick a winner for the Stone Glacier Bino Harness. So it's the Skyline Bino Harness. It's an awesome setup. It's, it's great. It's lightweight. It's perfect for scouting, hunting season, you name it. So I'm excited to give that away. So that's how you'll do that once this podcast goes live, just between that time and the following Friday tag me in something. I feel like this is the best way to give people that listen the best odds. So do that. If you don't have an account for the social media, but you've got know someone that does do that too. That's fine. It's pretty loosey goosey, but uh, I just got to be able to figure out who's listening and, and do it that way and then pick a winner. So that'll be a lot of fun. Thank you, Stone Glacier for doing that. They always are excited to be able to give back to you guys. They love this community. They are passionate hunters themselves so they're very supportive of the things that we do and and you guys out there as well so thank you so much also if you there's a couple of things that i'll be at this summer i got asked some questions if there's anything you know any other things that i'm going to or whatever there's tough fest in bozeman that's free tickets it's mountain tough puts on this incredible experience i'll be there on thursday night june 22nd i'm going to premiere a film that i made about just kind of the whole process of I, I released a lot of the mouth tab videos, but it, it wasn't very like succinct as to the order of things. So it's kind of like an overarching film of kind of the entire process and it's just like a deeper dive into that. It's been a lot of fun to put together. I think you guys are going to like it. Uh, so I'm going to premiere that at Tough Fest on June 22nd. And the if the tickets, they might already be gone. Honestly, there wasn't that many left. So there's free tickets. The people that are listening to this podcast live are probably going to scoop up the last one. So there might not be, but you maybe just want to plan for next year. And then I'll also be in Bozeman again on July 7th for the Sinead's block party. If you're interested and want to say hi, just hanging out, doing a little barbecue. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So I'll catch you guys until next week. Let's just say live wild. Catch you guys later. <laughs>